Hi, this is Stacy, the Baby Maker Robert. I have put together more than a decade of my clinical experience into developing the first online mentoring program that deals with the ever-growing area of natural fertility. My Baby Maker Network Mentoring Program is an online interactive program where you will learn how to address all aspects of fertility issues. If you are ready to be a part of an atmosphere that helps you build your practice while helping couples build their family, I look forward to getting to know you in the Baby Maker Mentoring Program. Please go to bioceuticals.com.au and click on the Education tab for more information and to register. FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. And joining me on the line today is Dr. Lisa Oates. And Lisa is a naturopathic practitioner and mentor based at Malvern Natural Healthcare in Victoria. Her doctoral research investigated the health and wellness effects of organic diets. As part of this research, she developed innovative dietary assessment tools, ran organic consumer surveys, and tested the level of pesticide residues in the urine of adults who consume organic compared to conventional foods. She's presented the findings at conferences in Australia, Poland, South Korea, and the Czech Republic, and we'll be discussing food toxicants at the ACNEM conference in Sydney on May the 1st, 2016. In 2007, Lisa developed the Food as Medicine course for the Postgraduate Wellness Program at RMIT University in Melbourne. She's the course coordinator and lecturer for Food as Medicine and Wellness Practices and Perspectives at RMIT and supervises naturopathic students, clinics at Endeavour College of Natural Health and Southern School of Natural Therapies. She's taught nutrition, complementary medicine in chronic diseases and health enhancement to naturopathic and medical students. Lisa has appeared as an expert guest on Insight and The Project and is a contributing author to the Herbs and Natural Supplements, an evidence-based guide, all four editions I might add, by Leslie Braun and Mark Cohen, as well as Complementary Therapies and the Management of Diabetes and Vascular Disease, and has published over 40 peer-reviewed journal articles. Lisa, welcome to FX Medicine. Boy, that's a, that's a heck of a lot you've been up to. I think you need a life. I think I do. <laughs> Sounds awful when you read it all out like that. <laughs> Not the least was uh, I think you need uh, kudos points for measuring the urine of these people. So well done to you. <laughs> Thank you. I, I used to always say, jeepers, I don't want to ever be a Swedish researcher, these people that smell armpits to look at their sweat yes. and things like that. <laughs> Now, you've done research, clinical work. You've also done a heck of a lot of lecturing and mentorship for natural medicine practitioners. Where did this all start for you? Oh, gosh. I, I guess like most, well, many natural health practitioners, I started off with my own health crises when I was in, the, in my early 20s. Mm. And I was fortunate enough to have an integrative doctor who sort of headed me in the right direction. Um, and, you know, over the years, I decided to have a little life change and um, study to become a naturopath. And after I graduated, uh, I found myself teaching food as medicine, which is a topic I'm extremely passionate about, a, a bit of a foodie. Uh, and then when it sort of came time to look at a PhD topic, 
I initially started looking at detoxification and when I started my literature review, I went, this is not going to work. There's just actually not enough out there to to base a thesis on. Hmm. So I started to actually think about what I did myself when I was doing detoxification programs with patients. And the cornerstone for me was always an organic diet, actually reducing the number of toxins going in. And so that's sort of how the PHV led off on to um, actually looking at how we could measure toxins in uh, organic versus conventional consumers as a way to sort of one day further down the track see what we can do about getting rid of them. Okay, so one of the issues of pesticides, let's say, is is, uh, indeed what to measure because they're short-term, but their effects aren't necessarily short-term. So am I right in thinking that there's, uh, you know, well-described surrogate markers for toxic overload that we should be measuring? Not particularly. I mean, when you think about it, there are thousands of different chemicals that we can be talking about. Mm. Uh, In our studies, we measured uh, measured metabolites of organophosphate. So the reason we chose to do these are adaptable dialkyl phosphate um, metabolites, and the reason we chose to do those was because uh, they represented about eighty percent of organophosphates, and organophosphates are sort of one of the major um, classes of pesticides that are used. But there are so many other different pesticides, and when you actually look at, at the testing, a lot of it's not particularly well developed. Um, you know, some of the tests will actually pick up things that aren't even pesticides. Uh, so there's not um, there's not a lot of really good testing in this area. So you sort of need to sort of be looking at um, if you're looking for a particular chemical that you want to test for. Uh, there are sometimes things available, but in terms of something broad that's going to give you a good idea of somebody's toxic load, that's a lot more complicated. Right. And I think you need to really go through in depth into your research because when you're looking at organic foods as a means to reduce toxins, it's a it's a pretty broad brush stroke because toxins can yes. come from so many different sources. So could Correct, you take yes. our listeners through what you did and, you know, the variants that occurred, all that sort of thing? Yeah. So in our study, we were specifically looking at organophosphate pesticides because, as I said, they, they are one of the sort of bigger classes of, of pesticides that are used. So basically what we did, um, we had a group of participants who, um, and we did a crossover study. So the participants were on a largely organic diet for for seven days. So when I say largely organic, um, we insisted that it was at least 80% organic and we had, you know, dietary surveys and things to actually assess that. Uh, And then the same participants um, completed a conventional diet, so eating the same sorts of foods but at conventional foods for another seven days. So at the end of each of those periods, we measured their urine and we tested these dialkyl phosphate metabolites. And what we found was that on average, they reduced about 90% within that seven-day period. Wow. So some people did the conventional phase first and then the organic, and some people did it the other way around. Yeah. Um, but as a general rule, there was a 90% reduction, which sort of confirms what we know about these pesticides is that they are relatively quick in and out of the system. Okay, so I'm just thinking about how you set up that trial and I thought about, well, okay, people who choose to eat an organic diet usually do so quite with with strong conviction and so they'd be extremely reticent to then say, ah, eat all the chemicals (laughs) now. So I'm imagining that you would be choosing people that would ordinarily eat an everyday pesticide-laden diet and then instruct them to eat an organic diet. Would that be right? Uh, Well, we had people who were were prepared to do both, basically. So we had people who actually 
did consume some organic food, so they knew where to source it and they were sort of familiar with um, with how to actually, you know, choose certified organic produce and it had to be certified that 80%. Yeah. Um, so we we basically um, we recruited them from places like farmers markets and things where you know people are a little bit more savvy about about their food. Uh, so it made it um, a bit easier. But but they had to all be prepared to um, actually consume a, a fully conventional diet for at least seven days. So they weren't the absolute diehards. Mm. Um, and we also we didn't we would uh, we didn't recruit anyone from regional areas or pregnant women or yeah. you know that sort of thing which, which would have complicated the issue a bit yeah 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 and and uh, sorry and something else has just popped into my brain I'm just thinking about trying to take out variants and this comes to mind because of a a rather embarrassing story when I first moved to Brisbane of the quote unquote organic market which was um, found out not to be selling organic food at all. Um, Oops. Yeah, big oops. Um, so did you test any of the organic food to make sure that it was actually organic? No, we didn't in this case. Um, there are some studies that have been done in the United States where they did that to confirm, but they actually provided the participants with the food. Yep. We weren't financially in a position to do that, um, but we did We did record everything that they ate and drunk, um, and to be classified as organic, it had to be certified organic, so it actually had to have... Certification. Uh, you know, we, we, gave them, we gave them, you know, pictures of all the organic certification I th- logos. I think that would be the differential because this was not organic certified. Uh, these yeah, foods were just right. sold as touted, written on the sign organic and they weren't. Yeah. yeah. Organic doesn't always mean organic. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think to be sure you really do need to go for the certified organic products. And, okay, another one that's coming to mind. I'm sorry here. <laughs> but um, with certification of organic fruit and vegetables, are there peak body bodies? How many? Is there heaps? Or? Yeah. So, um, yeah, there are a few in Australia. Uh, so, um, basically, we have a couple of sort of levels. So, we have uh, the Australian uh, standards for organic and biodynamic produce. So, these are the government regulations. Uh, so, these were initially uh, developed by the Australian Quarantine and Inspection Service. So, they're really actually to protect the export market more than anything. Yep. So, there's this overlying kind of um, standard that all of the certifiers have to adhere to. Um, but there are really two main certifiers in Australia. So they represent over 90% of the market uh, and they're both non-for-profit organisations. That's Australian Certified Organic and NASA. So um, those two organisations, um, there's actually about another six, but they're minor organisations that, that um, don't cover as much of the market and tend to be more involved in the export market than the domestic market. Um so these these larger bodies they they have their own certification standards as well. So they have to at least adhere to the, the Australian standards, but mostly their um, requirements are actually even stricter than than the legal requirements. Well, so okay. they That's might. Good news. Yeah. So for instance, um, the standard um, allows something to be called organic as long as. Um, there's not a level of a particular chemical above 10% of the maximum residue limit, whereas a lot of the certifying bodies will actually say, well, 10% is way too much and they might set the standard, uh, their standard at 5% or they might have zero tolerance for certain things. So um, those sorts of things will will vary sometimes between different certification organisations. 
um, but they all have to adhere to that sort of overarching standard at the, at, as the minimum requirement. And I think that that bodes well for the research because it means you're getting a, a, a wider difference between the toxic load and um, and the organic food. So you can actually yeah, see a, bit, right. a clearer so, difference, yeah. Yeah, so they do do testing, and if something actually is found for any reason to be over the over ten percent of the MRL, the maximum residue limit, they actually have to recall it. They have to do a public oh, recall, oh, but that practically never has to happen because they're onto things before they get that far. So, so here's the bad news: is if you're not buying organic food, you're buying up to twenty times what you should have been buying. Well, I guess so, yes. That's, that's the reverse, isn't <laughs> that's it? That's another way to look at it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's the glass half-empty thing. <laughs> so, um, Lisa, I have to ask you, this has been covered oh, a long time ago with regards to persistent organochlorine pest, um, pollutants, but yes. what about the combined effects of pesticides and other toxicants? Yeah, so this is actually one of the big concerns because you know, I think the, the regulatory bodies do their best to um, regulate foods to make sure they're safe for consumption, but there are so many different complicating factors, and one of them is the unpredictable nature of chem- of cocktails of chemicals. Yeah. So, to give you an example, uh, there are some studies done. It was actually they were actually done in salmon, but um, where they looked at. Uh, organophosphate pesticides and carbamate pesticides. Now, both of these classes of chemicals are both acetylcholinesterase inhibitors. So they were looking at, at the combined effects of these chemicals. And what they found was um, it, it wasn't a simple additive effect. There was actually a synergistic effect when you started to combine those chemicals that had um, similar effects. So um, uh, some of the, the salmon actually died at levels that they shouldn't have if you actually just worked on a basic um, addition calculation. And the others actually had earlier signs of acetylcholinesterase inhibition. So, really? you know, the sorts of things that we see in, in practice all the time, um, st- uh, you know, a, 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 an over-exaggerated startle response and excess mucus production, um, and I think they were listless and things like that as well. So um, how, how you test that in a, a salmon, I'm not exactly sure, but they've obviously got ways to do it. Uh, but yeah, certainly the you know the effects of chemicals of, of mixtures can become really complicated. And when you consider how many chemicals are out there, so you know we're just talking about pesticides, which is you know just one of the classes of agricultural and veterinary chemicals mm. that might turn up in in our food sources. But we're exposed to chemicals through what we eat, through what we drink, what we put on our skin, what we inhale. So um, there are you know over 100 million chemicals registered in the world. Oh, my so God. the combined <laughs> – not all of them are actually currently in use, but there are certainly a lot that are. And so trying to actually work out how those things are all going to interact is really difficult. So, you know, it's not always one plus one equals two. It might be one plus one equals 42. Yeah. Uh, so it's very difficult to actually predict how those things might actually um, – come together to work. And even individual chemicals don't respond the same way in different environments, in, at different temperatures, different pH, all sorts of things affects the way a chemical will behave. So I guess this, I mean, that really comes down to you've got to observe your patient at, at that time presenting with what they present with and, and support yeah. them through that. It's not just a broad brushstroke saying this chemical is treated this way. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's where you've got to do a good clinical history, but also recognise that 
most um, most of your patients have no idea what they're actually exposed to. Yeah. It's not like you pick up an apple and a little you know label pops out that says you've been exposed to <laughs> X number of parts per million of chlorpyrifos and X number of parts per billion of you know whatever pesticides. So. You know, there's a lot of um, controversy about, you know, linking pesticides with health concerns. But when you think about it, how could you even do that? <laughs> like, how can you do that on a large scale? With It's yeah. not like a pharmaceutical drug. If you're taking a pharmaceutical drug, A, it's been tested on humans, which is not done with pesticides because it's kind of considered to be unethical, mm. uh, which is ironic. Which is ironic. The, <laughs> yeah, we can put it in the food chain, but yeah, then we actually, you know, test it on human beings. Um so it, it gets into the food chain and, and there's very little post-market surveillance. Mm. Whereas with a pharmaceutical, there's the human testing that's done before. The person knows exactly what they're taking, exactly what dose, over what period of time. You know, the the practitioner can kind of see if something starts to change when they start to take this medication, that something's not quite right. There are formal um, ways that they can report that and it's enough data collects together, they start to look closer at something and eventually they might even take it off the market. And like even files. and even with that, that sometimes takes decades. Correct, I mean, it I does, mean if yes. we look at the issues with I mean oh, Viox was a quick reaction. Um, mm. But if we look at things like um, uh, thalidomide was an early one and probably not appropriate. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, what was it? Uh, Lovastatin. Uh, Lovastatin. Yeah. You know, that, that took years to, to get off the market. Yeah, um, because well, when you think concerns. about it, you know, um, cigarette smoking, you know, they started oh to goodness. talk about the deleterious effects of cigarette smoking <laughs> yeah. in the 20s and 30s, and yeah, we're still fighting that battle. Yeah. So when you're talking about the healthy foods, you know, I, I think the general term that most people would say was, oh, well, they're what, you know, um, our fresh fruit and vegetables are fresh, and so they're good for you, and that's not always the case. they are good for you. And, yeah. Look, they, they are good for you. Um, and I would never say to someone, eat less fruit and vegetables. And, you know, this is often a criticism when people start to talk about organic food and reducing pesticide exposure. The assumption is that people are therefore going to consume less fruit and vegetables, which right. is complete rubbish, of course, because when we actually look at organic consumers, which we've done, organic consumers tend to actually eat Hi. a lot more fruit and <laughs> yes. vegetables than, yeah. than the average person. Um, and part of that is also um, when people move to an organic diet, and we've, we've seen this in our research, when people move to an organic diet, they tend to make other dietary changes as well. And one is that they will tend to uh, reduce their meat consumption. And that's probably a financial thing as much as anything else. Yeah. But they also get closer to the source. Um, so um, to actually source their organic foods, they're a little bit more inclined to, you know, maybe go to farmers yes. to get sort of better prices and things like that. And so they're actually getting food um, that they're consuming a lot closer to harvest uh, and that hasn't been through, you know, long periods of storage Cold or transport storage, yeah. or whatever. Yep. So the nutritional value of that food is, is probably higher from that point of view anyway. Um, so, you know, the, the, the overall, I, I certainly would never say, consume less fruit and vegetables because you should be concerned about pesticides. Consume lots of fruit and vegetables, um, but still be a bit concerned about the pesticides and the way to get get both is to, you know, go organic as much as you can, as much you can as reasonably feasible. afford. Yeah. In opposition to some of these detractors for the organic diet who say that there's, you know, there's no point in doing it, I think um, it would, as long as it's practical, it's actually very useful. But can you comment on some of that negative um 
writing that was done? I, th- I think I remember one in um, Scientific American. Yeah, um, I think that uh, that article came out a few years ago. Um, very authoritative source, that one. I think it was Master Chef Wilcox from memory. <laughs> uh, and she she talked about a, um, quite a number of, of different issues. And, you know, to be fair, there was a little bit of cherry picking going on. She did cite some interesting articles. But I think one of the important things to remember is that the patterns of use are very different from region to region. So she was talking about what was happening uh, in the United States. Mm. Say here in Australia, for instance, um, our standards are a little bit different. Our patterns of use are a little bit different. So she talked about things like copper, which, yes, copper is used in organic farming, but it's actually um, much more restricted uh, in organic farming than it is in conventional farming. She talked about pyrethrins, um, which, yes, they're, they're um, potentially used in organic farming, but they tend not to be, and one of the reasons is because they don't really work. Um, <laughs> there's actually an adjuvant that's added to um, pyrethrins to actually make them more toxic so they actually work, and that's banned in organic farming. Right. So they tend not to actually use them because they're not effective enough. Yep. And there was another one, uh, Rotenone, which... Um, which is almost, I think, um, the organic industry is actually trying to have that removed from the standard at the moment because yep. they realised that there was information coming out to say that you know it wasn't uh, wasn't particularly um, a good thing to be using. So at this stage, I think the major certifying body, which is Australian Certified Organic, has pretty much banned its use amongst amongst its growers. I think it's maybe down to, to one use, which is a topical use in sheep or something like that. Right. But they've pretty much got it got it out of the system in Australia. So some of those concerns are, are, are not really relevant, um, say, to us here in Australia and different patterns of use in different countries. Similarly, you know, you look at something like the Environmental Working Group's Dirty Dozen Clean 15 list. Yeah. So, you know, that's great if you live in the United States, but... Um, we don't have the same amount of data to actually um, to inform uh, a, a list like that in Australia. But the data, the best data that we have is from Fizant, and that's the Australian Total Diet Survey. So they did pesticides a few years ago, and if you look at their data versus um, the Environmental Working Group's data, there's actually a lot of differences. So uh, in terms of the the Dirty Dozen list. About half of those foods weren't even tested in the Australian data. Mm. Um, and the other half, yes, they, they would deserve to be on that dirty dozen list. But then you look at their clean 15 list. Only two of the, um, only two of the foods that turn up on their clean 15 list, which is the sweet peas and onions, were also detected as being low in the, in the Australian Total Diet Survey. There was probably about seven that, that weren't done in Australia. Mm. And then there, and then there are six that, um, actually, the Australian Total Diet Survey showed um, had residues of, of certain things. So we probably wouldn't have those things on our Clean 15 list if we had enough data to put them together. So there were things like avocados, pineapples, cabbage, mangoes, kiwi and cauliflower. Yeah. But then there are some other foods that might be contenders to go on the Dirty Dozen list that weren't on the American list. So things like broccoli and lettuce and mushrooms and oranges and those sorts of things. So I do think we've got to be uh, really clear about what region we're looking at when we're reading these sorts of articles because there can be huge differences um, in the patterns of use. So practically, if you're talking about pesticides, and I notice you just mentioned broccoli there that should go in the mm. dirty dozen, um, some 
people were talking, oh, it was a few years ago now, talking about you should always wash your broccoli um, because yeah. the pesticide residues are on them. Are they only on them or can they be in the foods? No, they'll also be translocated into the food. So um, pe- washing, scrubbing, peeling can get rid of some pesticides, but, but not all. Yep. A lot of pesticides are designed to actually move into the actual food uh, and that's where they sort of exert their effect. So washing won't get rid of everything and peeling, you're then also losing a lot of the nutritional value as well. So um, it, it it sort of depends on the food and there's not really enough data to say which ones um, which ones you need to you, you can get away with just peeling or washing and which ones you can't because there, there's just not enough research in that area at the moment. I'd like to see somebody try and peel broccoli. <laughs> yeah, well, see, one of the problems with things like broccoli is it has such an enormous surface area. Yes. Uh, so you spray something on broccoli, you know, it, it's, in. it's not far to be absorbed. Yeah. When you're talking about practical interventions, recommendations that for, let's say for most people, yeah. Um, try and source a farmer's market. Try and wash things if you can, if you can't yeah. get them, but knowing that it's not really going to it's take It's not a guarantee. Whole, it's not a guarantee. Yeah. Anything else? Other practical interventions? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think the first thing, um, and obviously, you know, organic is, a, is an area of passion for me, so I'm always going to say um, as much as reasonably possible, go organic. And, and I say that to... Recognising that, that there is a price premium for organic, mm. but also noting that the average Australian household can, you know, spends only about 20 bucks a week on fruit and vegetables. So um, I think, you know, when we consider what we spend on mobile phones and pay TV and internet services amazing, and, and other things, um, I think sometimes, you know, if, if it's a priority for you and, you know, when we look at, at the data, um, income is not necessarily that much of a determinant of um, the amount of organic produce that people actually purchase. Um, so if it's a priority for people, even on a low income, sometimes they'll, they'll find ways to make it happen. And this is where things like farmer's markets yep. can be useful. Um, also, it's fresher. The nutrients are likely to be higher. It hasn't gone through, you know, the transport and storage and that sort of thing. So um, trying to get close to the source of production and the, and the time of harvest, I think, is is very useful as well. So that's where buying local things that um, can be handy. Grow what you can. Ah, I was um, just going to ask this have, question. <laughs> having said that, don't grow it in your backyard soil because you do not know what's in there. Yeah. Um, get so, it. for instance, if I go out into my yard and dig down about three centimetres, yeah. I start to get building rubble. Yeah. Um, so unless you've had your soil tested or you're really confident um, that, that your soil is clean, I would I would say get yourself some organic mulching put it, you know, in some pots and actually grow it separately. But, and build it up. You know, most people, yeah, even in even um, indoors, you know, I, I've lived in apartments where I've grown lettuce or leafy greens on a uh, in some pots on the, the windowsill. Yeah. So there's often some things you can do to sort of supplement by growing your own, but do be careful about, you know, anything you grow at home. So Read food labels. Um, so this isn't going to get you away from pesticides to say, but certainly some of the other chemicals your food could be exposed to. Yeah, and and I always um, advocate the use of a physical barrier. And yes, it's plastic, um, but you know mm. the the builder's plastic, the uh, forgive me, two hundred micron one. 
uh, the thicker one. Um, yes, I know it's plastic, but you've, I think you've just got to make a choice as to what's practical. You could then line yeah. it with other things, I guess. Yeah, I, I have a lovely, you know, thing that's sort of just, and I'm quite short, so, you know, it's quite easy to get to. And you can, um, so you can, you can get organic soil quite readily these days. Um, yeah, you can. You know, worm, use your own worms, all of that sort of thing, you know. Correct. I think this is an important thing to remember about organic too is, um, you know, often uh, it gets bogged down in, in thinking about organic as just being um, a, a system that, that doesn't use chemicals. But in actual fact, if you talk to an organic farmer, they barely even mention chemicals. <laughs> They're not really oh. that that interested in them. What they're interested in is the soil. They get very excited about soil wow. and they can, you know, bang on for hours about the health of the soil because the basic principles of organic farming are health, ecology, fairness and care. And it's yep. all about um, creating a healthy environment. So you create healthy soil, you build up the soil organic matter. Anything that grows in that soil is going to be healthy. Anything that eats that 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 plant is going to be healthier. So it all comes back to sort of nourishing the soil and mm. building it up and, and you know, making it the, this rich environment of microbes and nutrients and everything. And you've just touched on a huge, I mean, it's, it's a whole subject in itself is the, the microbes in the soil affecting mm. the health of what grows in it. I mean, it's, that's a yeah. massive subject, but that all, one. I think we also need to, you know, when we, we talk about pesticides, we also need to remember that, you know, some of those pesticides like glyphosate, actually, glyphosate is an antibiotic. Mm. <laughs> it's going to have negative um, effects wow. on the microbiome. So, you know, it, it's not just the chemicals themselves. Yeah. And something like something like glyphosate itself is not necessarily that toxic, although there's a lot of controversy at the moment about, uh, about it being a, a potential carcinogen. Um, but it's actually sometimes... The problem is the mixtures. We don't actually just use glyphosate on its own. We use it as a mixture. Mm. And some of those adjuvants that are added to it um, actually change uh, how toxic that, that product might be or some of its environmental breakdown products. So we're not just actually dealing with that individual chemical. In risk assessment, individual chemicals are assessed for that's risk. Right. But yeah. the reality is that's not how we actually are exposed no, to No, that's right. That's exactly right. So I, I've got to ask then, you know, a, Sometimes we're going to be talking about these vague symptoms and, and how can how can somebody measure the benefit apart from saying, yes, we measured less of these chemicals in their blood or the urine. Um, yeah. What other health benefits can they find? Like from what symptoms to what health benefits? Yeah, so we did a, a survey a few years ago and we had well over 400 people um, respond to it. So these were people who were organic consumers mm. And we basically, it was it was an exploratory study. So, you know, I'm not saying that, that organic food, are, you know, we've demonstrated that it definitely has these effects, but we were interested in what the organic consumers reported. Yeah. So after they um, moved to an organic diet, the key things that tended to come up again and again were um, improved resistance to and recovery from illness. So not getting sick as often when they did get sick, they got better quicker, um, more energy, better condition of skin, hair and nails, um, more mentally alert, better mood stability. And another one I thought was interesting was um, a better sense of satiety. People felt that when they oh, really? consumed organic foods, they actually felt more satisfied by them. And I have to say, I, I noticed that myself. If I go out into, and I think partly this is the freshness as well, but if I go out into my garden and pick my organic lettuce and bring it in, I feel so satisfied. <laughs> like it just, it just feels so much more satisfying. Yeah. 
Um, and I think we need to consider that, like the mind-body effects of consuming something that's in line with our values as well. So, you know, organic consumers, when we ask them about why they consume organic foods, the automatic assumption is that people are prepared to pay that price premium for their own individual health. But the thing that actually comes up higher is um, our environmental concerns yeah. because people are sort of aware that um, their own individual health is also dependent on the, the health of the planet. So um, I think, you know, when people put their money where their mouth is or, you know, um, what, what's the Michael Pollan comment about voting with your fork? Um, there, there's actually, uh, I think there's a mind-body um, benefit that comes with that as well in terms of well-being. So I, I, some people might call that a placebo effect, but I actually wouldn't discount that. I think it no. tells us how powerful the, the healing effect of the mind is. Oh, absolutely. Um, just going back to one of your comments there about that joy that you have about bringing the food to your plate sort of thing. Um, I was talking to a friend the other day about this, and I remember... Firstly, growing when I was a kid, um, growing veggies in our backyard, you know, the beans, the radishes. It's when I fell in love with radishes. Oh, um, yeah. Carrots. I love a good radish. Yeah, carrots and things like that. And you'd rip them out of the ground. Be, the beans especially, the, you'd rip them off the, pot, off the, off the vine, um, open them up, eat the beans or the peas, and they'd never make it to the table. You ate no raw way. veggies. Yeah, nah. <laughs> you'd, you'd pick the carrots out of the ground, brush off the dirt and eat it. <laughs> there was yeah. no washing. Uh, you know, I used to love that. And my sister who has a potty farm and she grows her own veggies and she has a thriving berry bushes, these beautiful berries. And so we used to go down and just just attack them. <laughs> And, oh, yeah, if you, if you could get to them first. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. But me yeah. and my sons, they got a true joy for that. There was the, I'll always remember my sons when they were younger just mm. getting that real like, man, I love berries. Well, this is the thing, though. I think, you know, if we can get kids involved in yeah. growing produce, you know, kids will eat things that have grown themselves. Yeah. Like, you know, and it might be something as simple as sprouting. Mm. You know, if you can get kids involved in growing food and producing healthy food, they're much more open to actually trying it and consuming it. And, hey, you know, if you're talking about the nutritional value, it can't be much better than when you pull it straight off the vine and into your gob. That's right. That's exactly right. All salient points. I, I, I've got to say, I, I'm I'm so refreshed <laughs> that that you've done this research. I've got to ask you: Is there any further research that you're looking at with organic foods? Ooh, is it secret? Maybe it's secret. <laughs> okay. Uh, yes, we are, uh, so at RMIT, we do have some other studies coming up. Yeah. So uh, Lauren Burns, who um, most people will be familiar with, she's the uh, she was the Taekwondo Olympic gold medalist at the 2000 Olympics. Uh, she's doing some research with her um, as part of her master's, so yeah. she's going to be looking at organic food uh, in athletes. So, so we will that'll watch be this space. Exciting. Yeah, absolutely. So Lauren uh, so, Burns. Yes. So we're, uh, I think she's, I think the ethics approval is just pretty much through for that now. So yeah. um, that'll be an interesting uh, watch this space. Yes. Um, and, yeah, there's um, some other things on the agenda there as well. So it will be quite interesting to see what comes out in the future. Good stuff, Lisa. Um, I, thank you so much for taking us through that. No, it's really opened my eyes as to, you know, we take so much from overseas experts and, and they just may not be, in fact, often aren't applicable to Australian practices. That was an eye-opener for me but also the simple things that we can do to improve our lifestyle, eating organic veggies and fruit. Yeah, and just getting more involved with your food, whether it's growing it yourself 
or chatting to the, the person who actually grew it and asking them what they did with it. Brilliant, Lisa. Thank you so much for joining us on FX Medicine. Thanks, Andrew. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. This is Andrew from FX Medicine. We thank you so much for your support over the last two years. We'd really love to remain clinically relevant to your practice. So if you know of an expert in some area, please let us know. You can contact us on fxmedicine.com.au, Facebook or Twitter. 